We're in Hebrews chapter one, continuing where we were before. Uh, last night I was watching at the end of the evening, 30, maybe the last 30 minutes or so of a, I think it was a PBS uh, rendition of a Dickens work. And you know, if it's Charles Dickens, it's gonna be dark and miserable and there's gonna be all these terrible things happening. And you know, it's always interesting to me that um, God speaks through unusual things in unusual times and unusual places and often where you don't expect to hear God speak. And so I'm watching this Dickens thing and things are you know, rapidly progressing to the end and, and finally the evil villain is getting his comeuppance and the evil life that he built is starting to crash around him. And as they show the ending of this particular uh, situation, they pan out to a beggar who's outside that house, who's panhandling for change, and he's singing this song. So this is what I heard last night as I was you know, watching TV. The beggar sings, God is working his purpose out as year succeeds to year. God is working his purpose out and the time is drawing near. Nearer and nearer draws the time, the time that will surely be. When the earth shall be filled with the glory of God, as the waters cover the sea. And I thought, as miserable as things were in the movie, as miserable as things are on earth sometimes, and even though I can't quite figure out how it's happening, God is working his purpose out. And and when we go back to scripture, when we read the passages that are there, sometimes it is hard, very hard, to figure out what God is doing. Sometimes it doesn't make any sense to us at all. But I'm learning that God speaks to Abraham in ways that Abraham understands. And God speaks to Moses in ways Moses understands. And God speaks to Isaiah in ways that Isaiah understands. And God speaks to Peter in the way Peter understands. And God speaks to Paul in the way Paul understands. And that means if I'm gonna understand what they had to say, at some measure, I'm gonna have to get behind their eyes and see the world the way they saw it. That's never more true than in this passage we're reading this morning. If you're making the kind of arguments that the author to Hebrews is gonna make today, unless you understand what he sees, what he says isn't gonna make any sense to us. And so for about the first five minutes of this message today, I'm gonna have to beg your indulgence as we work our way through a legal argument that doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense to us, but takes us to the place the author wants us to arrive. So let's read Hebrews 1, starting roughly in the end of verse three, the beginning of four, then we'll jump into his argument. This is what the word says, Hebrews 1, 3b. When he had made purifications for sins, 
he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And in the beginning, Lord, you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands, they will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like clothing. Like a cloak, you will roll them up, and like clothing, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will never end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels spirits in the divine service sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? I have to be really honest. I've read that passage a million two times. And most of the time, I just skip over it. Because it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. And it wasn't until I got all the reference books out and all the research books out and started plotting my way through all of these quotations that it began to make some sense to me. And even then, it wasn't easy. But this is what the author's saying. The Son, Jesus, is superior to angels. And you say, who cares? I mean, we don't even think that much about angels today. Why would we care that the Son is superior to angels? And the importance of the argument only makes sense if you can look through the eyes of this author 2,000 years ago. It's important to know that the Jews of this day believed that the Old Testament covenant, the covenant given the law, was given in a way that was accompanied by angels. There's an obscure Old Testament passage that says that when the law was given, it was accompanied by a group of holy ones. And the Jews believed that, that those were angels. And so that the law was given in the company of angels. And since that first covenant, that first testament, what we call the Old Testament, was established and delivered by angels, it was consequently divine. That meant the law that was delivered was supernatural and therefore not subject to change. And further, because of this, it's inconceivable that a greater teaching than the Old Testament law could ever arise because the first one had been delivered by the angels. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. Jesus is so much superior to angels that consequently, in the same way that Jesus is superior to angels, the new covenant is superior to the old. This New Testament, this new law of grace and forgiveness and unity is superior to that which came before. And so he begins the process, and this is what we're gonna walk through, of quoting seven times 
from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, passages that demonstrate that Jesus is superior to angels. That's what all these quotations are about. And so we're gonna walk through the quotations very quickly so you can see what he's trying to say. The first thing he's saying is the son's name, the son's inheritance, and the son's position are all superior to that of the angels. Look at the verse he quotes. Go ahead, Amy. He quotes Psalm 2, 7 to 9. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The Jews understood this psalm to be talking about the Messiah. And so when God talks about his son, he's saying that all things are going to be delivered to the son. When it says, I will make the nations your heritage, he's saying Jesus will reign. And that his inheritance, the rulership of all the world, is greater than anything the angels will receive. That's argument one. Argument two, he says, the son is the fulfillment of the messianic promise to David. You remember that God promised that there would always be uh, an inheritor to the uh, royal throne of David, and this particular messianic psalm that the Hebrews author quotes goes like this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down, I will raise up your offspring. When David dies and he's buried, God will raise up his offspring and he will establish the throne of the kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. This is the uh, confirmation in the Hebrew author's mind that this Jesus who came is the inheritance of David. Let's go to the next one. Psalm 97 is known to the Jews as the second advent psalm. And it talks about the return of the Messiah when Jesus comes a second time. And this is what's quoted by the author. Look at the end of verse seven. All worshipers of images are put to shame. Those who make their boast in worthless idols, all gods bow down before him. You read that and you say, what does that have to do with angels? Well, this is what it has to do with angels. As you might know, about 200 B.C., the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. That translation is called the Septuagint. Septuagint for the 70 elders who translated it. And that was the Bible the disciples knew. So in their day, they knew the Septuagint as their scriptures, the Old Testament. And if you read the Septuagint, that verse, let's go, up here. that verse was, um, translated differently. So instead of the word being all gods bow down before him, in the Septuagint it reads all angels bow down before him. Because the word is supernatural beings and it was hard to get your hand around the translation. So when the Hebrew author looks back for scriptural evidence that Jesus is superior to angels, he says angels bow down before him, consequently he is superior to angels. That's what the quotation means. Let's jump on to the next one. Here again, uh, the author is citing the fact that because angels delivered the covenant that they were significant, but Jesus is more significant to angels. And he quotes the psalm that says, you make the winds your messengers, flames and fire your ministers. Again, in the Septuagint, the minister is, is angels. And so the Hebrew author is saying, the angels serve you, and because they serve you, they are not as important as Jesus is. Jump to the next one. 
There's no end to the kingdom of Jesus, the Messiah, and so by talking about the forever aspect of this kingdom, he's saying his authority stretches into infinity and his authority over angels stretches into infinity. Show us the, the quotation. Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. Your royal scepter is a scepter of equity. Um, another citation that Jesus' throne goes forever. Last one. The character of the kingdom and the character of the king never change. All we have said previously is eternal. Show us the quote. Long ago you laid the foundation of the earth. You get the idea here that this plan of Jesus, this unveiling of who Jesus is, began before he even created. And so Jesus was, well, the divine son was eternal even before this Hebrews guy started writing. It's not that Jesus becomes the Messiah of God in the, in the New Testament sometime. The divine son has always been superior to angels. So you read all of that and you say, well, that's a very interesting argument. Yeah, maybe I'll believe that Jesus is greater than angels. But why take the time to make the argument? It seems sort of dry and boring to us. Why would we... Why would we care, and why did the Hebrew audience care? Well, angels were important to the Jews of the day. And to, to talk about angels is to talk about the law. And when you consider the attachment of the Hebrews to the law, when you consider what the Jews of the day that this is written in were being asked to do, you consider what a monumental change is on the table. I mean, think about it for a second. Jesus comes, his life is understood in terms of the Old Testament, he's crucified, he dies, his disciples are saying that he has risen again, and that a whole new ethic, a whole new morality, a whole new way of living is being ushered in, and these new Christians, and especially these Jewish Christians, to whom this letter is written, are being able to are being asked to believe something completely new. It's something their ancestors didn't know. It's something that their traditions didn't reflect. It's a whole new category of thinking. Everything that they've built their lives on, to some level, is being called into question in their minds. And though Christian Jews of the day are able to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything they believed, this is still an earth-shaking transition. And so this author is systematically trying to demonstrate how all of this fits together and how all of this is fundamentally important because Jesus is the expression of what it means to be Jewish. That's what this author is saying. But the author does more than just announce a legal argument. I brought this handy little red flag with me that I'm not really gonna try to wave because I now hit myself in the head with it. But it's good to have a visual aid when something significant pops out of scripture for you. Five or six times in this book, the author's gonna stand up and he's gonna wave a red flag. 
Like a lawyer, he's building a legal case through the whole book, but he pauses for interpretation every now and then. And it's possible, if you've ever read a legal brief, to get lost in the verbiage and miss the point of what's being said, okay? And so he just waves these red flags. It's like, pay attention here, because this, this is where it matters. This is what's important, and chapter two is the red flag. Therefore, we must pay greater attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the message declared through angels was valid and every transgression or disobedience received a just penalty, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How do we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The image here is one of drifting. Don't drift away. The image is one of floating past a secure place in a river and failing to anchor to that secure mooring and just drifting with the current away. The concern of the author is that Christians might fail to understand how important this gospel is and might, under pressure, subtle or not, just slip away. Or maybe under intense pressure, they might just overtly walk away from this gospel message and incur the judgment that must surely come. Or maybe Jewish Christians would decide over time, well, maybe they'll just pack in this new Christian aberration and slip back into comfortable Judaism and forget that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Judaism ever stood for. You know, interestingly, this warning, this red flag, is very timely historically because Hebrews is written just a few years before the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed and Christians and Jews are kicked out of Jerusalem. Uh, it's a miserable time of persecution that's just a few years after the writing of this letter. So this warning to not drift or slip away is a very, very timely warning to those first Christians. Persecution is going to come. The Jews are going to fall out of favor with Rome and the Christians along with them. Do you ever feel like Christians are going to fall out of favor with our government sometime soon? I mean, this kind of thing has happened before. And the author of Hebrews is arguing in the face of that, don't ignore the value of your salvation. You know, it would have been easy for those early Christian Jews to slip back into Judaism. Those pathways were better known, they were ancient. It's easy to slip into a, a civic moralism. You know, just do good to others. Everyone can respect that, right? Forget about Jesus and the divisions he creates. This author reminds us, don't drift away. Jesus is at the center of everything. He is working his purpose out in human history. Most folks younger than me 
have been raised in a generation whose primary attention is given to trying to bolster the self-esteem of young children. I'm not saying this is all bad, but it can easily get twisted into a system where we reward non-achievement. Too often, we try to boost self-esteem artificially. We We want our kids to feel good about themselves. We want to compliment them for who they are and tell them their value for who they are. But we also expect our kids to build on what they've been given and add to it. To the fundamental gifts that they get, they need to add discipline and hard work to what they have. They need to add accomplishments and achievements through their hard work. They need to develop goals and aspirations to indicate that they value what they've received. Yes, we value all of our children, but we do have to have appropriate expectations of them if they're going to grow. And when they squander their gifts, when they revolt against any form of discipline or hard work, when they refuse to plan for the future, well, those aren't things that good parents reward. A manufactured self-esteem only takes you so far. Eventually, you have to work if you're gonna feel good about yourself. In the spiritual realm, you already know, every one of you, more often than not, every one of us, when we're on our own, we prefer to be self-centered. You know the acts that you've committed that demonstrate the level of your self-centeredness. You and me, when we're honest with ourselves, we know that there are things that we've done that we need to be forgiven for. We know that um, we don't deserve a lot on our own merits. And yet Jesus did something magnificent for us when we were at a time when we really didn't deserve much. He put together this amazing plan that would allow us to receive forgiveness for the things we've done that we know we shouldn't have done. A plan that would allow us to establish our value in his love for us but then in cooperation with him, go on to change the world for good by his grace. All of those things are a part of his plan for us. He loves us unconditionally, but he has expectations. He has expectations. And it's useless for us to just only talk about the love of God and forget that he has a plan for us. He wants to use us to do good in the world, to to love the people he loves. And so the author reminds us, don't drift away. Don't neglect this salvation. And when he says salvation, he's talking about that full plan, that whole plan, the plan that includes his love for us, his rescue of us, 
and his transforming grace that unleashes us into the world to do good. Don't drift. He has created a future for you. If you will listen to his voice, you'll hear him say, I love you. You'll hear him invite you into his family and say, you know, you've been doing this yourself a long time and you've made a little bit of a mess of it. If you will ask for forgiveness, we can clean this up and we can do better together. And then from that moment, he walks with us into a future that is radically different than what we've known in the past. Don't ignore that great plan of salvation. For at a great price, Jesus put it in place for you. You say, how do I, how do I get on board with that? It takes a leap of faith. There's no denying that. You have to believe that the gracious act of Jesus on the cross of Calvary meant something, that he took on the price of our sins. You have to believe that his love for us is beyond what we can imagine. You have to believe that he does have good things in store, that he wants to use you to move into the future he desires for you. But if you'll invite him to lead you, if you'll invite him to cleanse you from sin, if you'll pledge to work with him, he is anxious to have you as a son or daughter in his family. Don't drift. Don't ignore such a great salvation. By faith, step into the kingdom today. I need you, oh, I need you every hour. I need you, my one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. Let's pray together. Gracious Jesus, thank you for this warning. I confess, Lord, it's sometimes hard to get through all of what your word is saying, but the warning's clear. We hear your word telling us that we have a great salvation that you've planned for us. May we all together find that salvation and may we live our lives to your glory doing good to as many people as possible as often as we can so that all of our lives become a response to your goodness we pray this in the name of christ
Amen. May you know the joy of walking in step with Jesus all the days of your life. To the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.